Hey there, Light Pollution News listeners. It's Bill, and I have a couple of quick things I want to pass along to you before the show begins. First, we've added a new texting feature to the show. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments that you'd like to make and be interested in having read on a future show, please check out the new Text Us button on the episode page from whatever podcast player that you are using. Second, we're going to try something new for our June recording. Now, I'm not 100% sure on how this will work yet but I will be offering current paid subscribers a chance to watch a live feed, perhaps add commentary and questions during the show. I'll be emailing our paid subscribers this month with the invites. If you are a paid subscriber, thank you, and definitely be on the lookout. I will say one caveat. I'm honestly not sure how this will work yet, so please be patient with me as I navigate through the uh, this new step forward for us here at Light Pollution News. All right, on to the show. Light Pollution News, Episode 5, Lumens Are Calling. Today, we surmise about the coming lumen apocalypse, and we take a journey to learn about the history of light temperatures. We learn about light pollution's impact on mosquitoes. A new study casts doubt on streetlights' impact on melatonin. Plus, is darkness becoming a luxury? We have an excellent panel this month featuring Dark Skies, Michael Reimer and youth advocate Bonnie Pang. All that and more in this month's Light Pollution News. Get ready for a new LPN now. Welcome to your home to another episode of Light Pollution News Podcast, the place to hear all about the news related to light pollution and more. As a reminder, you can read all of the articles we talk about today learn lighting tips, and more information by visiting our website over at lightpollutionnews.com. The article listing for this show and for all shows can be found also on our Reddit group at r slash lightpollutionnews. And big news, now we have an Instagram account. You can join us over at Instagram at light.pollution.news. That's a light.pollution.news. And we're posting pretty regularly over there. Today, I'm very lucky to have a fun and young panel. I'm the old man of the group, but that's all right. We get a fantastic Gen Z input from our favorite youth advocate, Bonnie Peng, making a return trip. And from way over on the other side of the nation, are you on the other side of the nation? I don't know where you're at, Michael. So I live in Denver, but right now I'm in Texas. Okay. I'm from Texas, so I came home to uh, visit family. So okay. right now we're in Texas. Awesome. Great. Well, from halfway to the other side of the nation. <laughs> We welcome a, the International Dark Sky Extraordinaire. If you've communicated with Dark Sky recently, you'll know him, Michael Reimer. Michael, so are are you technically Gen Z? What what are you? What? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 31, so I'm glad that you said I was young. I appreciate that. So, <laughs> um, I, I think technically I'm millennial. I don't know if that's Gen Z also. I think that's Gen Y. But yeah, I, I think... I'm just uh, right above Gen Z threshold. Where do, where do we go after Z? Bonnie, where do we go after Z? Like, what's, like, what's the next group? AA? No, I, I heard it was like Alpha or something. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I'm not a fan <laughs> of that name, but. It kind of makes you guys sound like, you know, the end and then Alpha is way better than the Z. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know no, about that. I think that. we're better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Bonnie, you're still down in uh, South Jersey, right? Yeah, I am. Experiencing this great 
weather? I guess this rainstorm we've had this past yeah, weekend. It's it's really rainy. Like I don't know. The weather feels like on and off these days. Yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of spring weather now. We had a little bit of what summer a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> who knew? Michael, does that mean uh, down there? Are you is it? Rangers, Cowboys, what are what are we doing? Yeah, it's okay. it's it's the Dallas Fort Worth area for me, so all those teams, Rangers, Mavs, Stars right now are making a postseason push. I think they're still in it. So Yeah, Stars yeah. had a great season. Yeah. So yeah. Those are those are the teams. All right. Well, we have a jam packed episode for you today. So let's dive in, shall we? First up. Yeah. Is light pollution making darkness a luxury? This comes to us from Emma Beddington over at The Guardian. In her book, Enchantment, Catherine May surmises that our love of electric light is leeching some of the wonder from the world. As I pointed out when I started this show way back on episode zero, darkness suffers from a pretty bad branding. Beddington concurs, pointing out on how scripture and literature use phrases like the people that walked into darkness have seen a great light or how philosophical awakenings such as the enlightenment disentangled us from dark illiberal thinking of the past dark and scary and safety and light Bennington brings up the british television series scared of the dark in which eight celebrities enter a pitch black reality space for eight days bonnie is darkness do you feel darkness is already a luxury? I know you, last time you were on, you mentioned that you had never seen really a good starry Milky Way sky, right? Yeah. So, like, I think whether darkness is considered a luxury or not may depend on, like, various factors, such as a person's individual or, like, their cultural background or, like, their personal preferences and their lifestyle. Like, for example, some youth may enjoy spending time in areas with low light levels, such as stargazing or camping in like the wilderness. In other cases, experiencing natural darkness may be considered a luxury. On the other hand, some youth prefer well-lit environments, like I mentioned in the previous episodes, for various reasons, such as like safety concerns or personal comfort. For these individuals, I feel like darkness may not be perceived as a luxury, I think it's difficult to make like a definitive statement whether darkness is a luxury. But for me personally, I think it is a luxury just because it's something I don't get to experience often. And I, when I do experience it, um, I think it's a very memorable sight seeing like the celestial objects. It's like, really cool. Yeah, body. I want to flip that back to you. So, in order to get to darkness, you need to have certain kind of economic status usually these days, right? I guess so. Like to some extent, yeah. Michael, I see to like dark places. I guess. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. You know, um, you guys are up in the northeast part of the United States, so you got that tri-state area thing going. <laughs> you know, everybody's living close to these epicenters. Uh, you know, of activity and industry and infrastructure, and everything's so lit up for you guys to have like to be able to go see a dark sky you got to have the time and the means to afford doing that you know you have to go away you know and you have to factor in travel expenses you know whether you're going to fly or drive and you have to take time off of work you know if you can do so and accommodations even if you're camping that's going to cost some money with 
you know, campsite rental gear, you know, equipment, stuff like that. Going, going outside of your house is expensive, I guess, depending on how close you are to a dark environment, you know, that, that factors in, um, you know, people in the Western part of the country have a, a little bit better cause they don't have to go too far. Um, that's where a lot of international dark sky places are. So, uh, you know, out in the desert, like Arizona, Utah, Colorado, uh, Nevada, Wyoming, you, it's a little bit closer to your backyard, but even then you still got to go somewhere. Um, so I, I think it is kind of a luxury just to be able to travel really in general, but to go to a really pristine dark place. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that perspective. It's like an economic luxury type. So there's a lot of gear, right? When you go out. Yeah. 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 So, you know, if you're going to go out to a dark sky, you know, like out in the West or you want to be somewhere where it's away from civilization more or less. So you're going to have to either camp or take your camper or something. I mean, traveling anywhere costs money. Um, but if you're going to go somewhere a little bit more remote to see a dark sky, you know, that's going to entail a lot of expenses that a lot of people may not consider. Um, and it's, they're going to be tougher places to get to tougher places to find accommodations. So yeah, you're going to want, you're going to have some money to uh, sink into that. I think darkness can be a luxury if you're going to travel for it. And if you're going to live somewhere where it's dark, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that factor into uh, affording property in places where it's dark because you're away from everything. Utilities aren't so readily available. So I think it could cost you some money if you're going to try to be around darkness. Yeah, that, those are really good points there. I know it, typically uh, here we go up to Cherry Springs and to just get an Airbnb. It's very competitive on those dark sky weekends. Any time of the year, it's very competitive. And the rates up there can range anywhere from from a modest price, but all the way up to a very expensive price for a standard rental. We're not talking anything very special. It's kind of like... You know, kind of like going to a beach whereby you have a limited resource and everyone kind of wants to do it for a few days. Uh, but it, it does cost money. I, I'm kind of with you on this, Michael. I think there it does come across like it's much more of a luxury. And you have to be of a certain economic status, I feel, to, to really be able to enjoy it. And then, Bonnie, I, I get your point where, you know, as younger folk, I feel so old saying that. I don't think I'm that old, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, you, you want to have fun. You want to go out and there's a lot of things that you, you want to be experiential, right? Versus maybe I'll try to find a better way to describe how being in like an environment versus being actually tactile and uh, engaging with the environment, right? Yeah. Definitely. Does that does that come across to make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Like uh, just with more hands on environment rather than like on media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as many of you know, during April, many communities celebrated International Dark Sky Week. Uh, that happened during the middle of April. I myself helped. We did a Instagram takeover of our local Friends of the Wissa Hicken Instagram out here, which is a very big park in the city, in the city confines of Philadelphia. It's a gigantic park. To confirm Beddington's inclination to think that darkness may be a luxury, I decided to list just a few of the articles that came through this month. And there's many articles that came through this month, in part because we had Dark Sky Week. But also, there's 
a trend upward now that we're starting to get closer to summer of people wanting to get out and do some activities with the family and, and share different things that they can't do on a normal basis, like going to national parks and seeing night skies. So just to share a few of them, dark skies, bright future, Japan looks to the heavens for tourism appeal. And that came through in the Japan Times. Uh, four nighttime spots to celebrate Dark Sky Week in Maryland. And this came through in Baltimore Magazine, which listed uh, Assateague Island, Greenridge Forest, a former Civil War prison camp at, of Point Lookout, and uh, Tuckahoe State Park in Delmarva. And then another one, the Tourism Department plans Dark Sky promotion. And this is from Register Herald down in West Virginia, uh, Department of Tourism. I think it might have partnered with you guys, Mike, uh, that they're offering up 100 Dark Sky-themed prizes to tourists, including 15 GoPro Hero 11s. Yeah, West Virginia is going to be kind of uh, stepping up in the Dark Sky game, I think. We actually have a group of advocates there who are looking to start a chapter in the state. It'd be the first one, at least if it's not a statewide chapter, it'd be more of a regional one uh, around the panhandle. Uh, And then West Virginia Tourism, yeah, they might be a sponsor for the upcoming uh, photo contest for the IDA. So West Virginia is trying to trying to make some headway. So it's pretty cool to see that they're promoting this. And those are some of the darkest skies on the east is the uh, the Spruce Knob area, that part of the high Appalachians in West Virginia. That kind of, I think, entails the uh, the trend we're seeing. And I don't know, you know, I, I personally don't think it's necessarily a, a good trend to see darkness go to luxury, to see a natural night sky go luxury. I, I think it, it just creates more divide. I, I know I've done outreach, uh, telescope outreach with kids in North Philly and whatnot. And they're blown away by stuff you can see just... In North Philly, we have uh, Brandon Happ last month on. For, he does telescope outreach down South mm-hmm. Philly, and and people really get impressed by it. You don't see it, you don't know it's there. Yeah. And just like many issues we've seen on the ecological side, you know, where you may have not noticed different species disappearing, I feel like that's the same way we're seeing on the, you know, our, our nighttime sky should not be lit up like last night. It was white. Because there's low hanging clouds, so the whole hmm. night sky was pure white. You know that that shouldn't be natural, but people won't know it's not natural unless they are able to step away from that. And in order to get people away from that, you know, nowadays it does cost a significant amount of money to get people away from that, so they can see that. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges we face here going in further into the 21st century. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> it's unfortunate that you have to have money to enjoy the natural world. <laughs> well, here's one thing that got my brain turning a little speculation on what the future may hold. I guess here come the lumens. This is a blog article written by the Haas school of business professor, Lucas Davis to start. I believe Davis sums up the current led movement at one fell swoop. LEDs are great. Even if they won't necessarily result in large net energy savings. And by that, he means the economic value of LEDs outshine all competing lighting technologies. Per Davis, replace your incandescence with one of these and your energy consumption goes up, not down. Davis argues using an example of the Amazon best-selling 120-watt LED bulb that produces 12,000 lumens, a brightness so intense that the instructions actually warn users not to look at the light for fear of eye damage. Let me put this in comparable terms. 
Compared with traditional incandescent lights, lumens, the measure of brightness set roughly 13 times the wattage of a normal 60-watt light bulb. So if, if you got a 60-watt light bulb, you receive 800 lumens. Davis believes that the LED revolution is still relatively juvenile, with outdoor lighting ripe for mass consumption. He pauses. Maybe it didn't make sense to have so many lumens in your backyard previously, but now it probably does. And wouldn't it be nice to have bright street lighting, particularly in areas with pedestrians and cyclists? To sum up Davis's theory, LEDs, LED lights are about to reshape how we experience our day-to-day life, perhaps even in ways we couldn't imagine. Already, street lights in most cities that convert to LEDs are set to daytime levels of brightness, many using daytime color spectrums. I don't believe Davis is uh, specifically arguing for brightness. Rather, he just is stating the trends as he sees it. Mm. On our site, lightpollutionnews.com, you can find links to a series of different unique and dark sky compliant lighting fixtures. And I'm sure over at the IDA, you guys have a exhaustive listing of different dark sky compliant lighting fixtures. Yes, we do. Yeah. And that, that is rolled into our fixture seal of approval program. Yeah, it's under, uh, if you go to our main page, it's um, in the heading under our programs. Uh, and you can find it. It's FSA or fixture seal of approval, um, where we give a list of designers, manufacturers, and technical mi- committees uh, about controlling light pollution. And we recognize the best way to accomplish uh, our goal of restoring our natural nighttime environment is through promotion of quality outdoor lighting. So, uh, we developed this program to achieve this, to provide objective third-party certification uh, for lighting that minimizes glare, uh, reduces trespass, and doesn't pollute the night sky. Do you see an uptick in people actually using it? Because what, what I'm seeing here, Lucas Davis is saying that, hey, people are going to find more creative ways. People want nighttime to be as bright as, as possible. Do you see people actually, do you see an uptick in people going to those links and trying to really? I don't personally. Um, someone else runs this particular program. Um, but we encourage our advocates and consumers to keep an eye out for these products, you know, that have this seal. And you can, if you go to a Home Depot or Lowe's or any any home uh, home improvement stores, and in the lighting section, you have to look around um, and check your, you know, check the boxes, of course. But you'll see that label. You'll see that stamp of approval on the certain fixtures, and those are the ones that we want people to go for. And this, and they're not ugly. You know, they're very nice looking fixtures. I think. Yeah. Um, I, so. I, so one of our neighbors has a great fixture. It looks mm-hmm. like it's motion uh, activated, and when it's not. Motion activate just looks like a like a candle, right? When mm. it's motion activate, it's a sconce in the front of their porch, and when it's motion activated, it gets it gets bright. Uh, but when it's not, it just looks like a you know a gaslit candle or some kind of burning candle or something like that. It's a it's very very nice, very decorative. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean it. It's not that hard to find something that looks aesthetically pleasing and gives is responsible for outdoor lighting you know it's responsible and that it doesn't pollute the night if there's a light that the manufacturer says don't look directly at it for eye damage (laughs) uh don't buy that that's not good (laughs) yeah that's that's problematic (laughs) well continuing the theme of leds our next article comes to us from 
Tom Skoka uh, of New York Magazine. New light is bad. There's something off about LED bulbs, which will soon be, thanks to federal ban, the only kind you can buy. Skoka discusses an aspect of LED lights that he finds both hopeful and troublesome. From our vantage, this piece contains some interesting tidbits, including a discussion on color rendering. At the heart of the discussion was his assertion that obtaining light characteristics derived primarily from two different schools of thought, which this is stuff I, I did not know about, the engineers and the doctors. Per Skoka, the idea of modern LED color output derives from the Nobel-winning application of gallium nitride to create a standardized blue hue, which can be found in everything from street lights to flashlights to headlights and more. From the engineer's perspective, the blue light is rational, in line with solar daylight. Offices, malls, factories came to embody the oppressive 5,000 Kelvin lighting temperatures. Conversely, on the medical science end, doctors pref- preferred to peg light colors closer to that of a candle rather than to the sun. Overall, better health derives from warmer nighttime lighting. But how do we arrive at warmer nighttime lighting? So it should be noted that calibrating LEDs to a standard light color is actually more difficult than the average consumer would envision. LED lights require coatings, very delicate coatings, as I'm led to believe from Buddy Stefanoff. I don't know if you guys over at IDA have worked with Buddy Stefanoff, um, Crossroads LED, hopefully a future guest here. The coatings don't just inflate the price of the LED lights, but they are also applied inconsistently. Even though the the light may technically be rated warm, say 3000 Kelvin, uh, some manufacturers, the way they apply the coating may actually contain a very sizable amount of blue spectrum light coming through the mixture. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so like I mentioned, we we have the fixture seal approval program where uh, you can go on our site and you can look through our database of all these different uh, retailers and manufacturers that we partner with. And uh, Crossroads LED is actually one. So um, I haven't worked with Buddy myself, um, but if he's with Crossroads, then he's aware of this program. Um, and we have tons of manufacturers that we work with um, to provide dark sky friendly lighting. So um, yeah, 3000 Kelvin that's right on the edge we think nowadays uh but even yeah as you say here still a lot of blue spectrum in coming from that fixture so we want to go even warmer you know we try to recommend between 22 and 2700 kelvin uh for good color temperature well we're gonna actually look at that a little later in the show but it is interesting that certain manufacturers i guess it's expected right now leds are kind of a boom and you have plenty of manufacturers. I'm sure many of them are very small manufacturers um, that are just trying to push something out there. Quite possibly. Um, I, 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 coming into this industry, I didn't know much about lighting manufacturers myself. You know, um, so there's a lot of companies that we have that we partner with um, that maybe most people have never heard of. Uh, Musco Lighting is a big one, though. Um, so they're partners with us in this Panasonic. Uh, they put out some light fixtures as well. So there's some names that are very recognizable. Um, but again, like it comes back to just being a responsible consumer and knowing what you're 
you're, you're shopping for. Mm-hmm. Um, lower lumens, lower color temperature. And that's going to solve a lot of problems. I swing over to the IDA website to be able to find some of these fixtures, right? Absolutely. Darksky.org. And uh, just look for the fixture seal of approval program and you'll find all the information you need to know about it. Some quick hits here real fast. Uh, <laughs> this is where we have little stories that we don't have to go really deep diving on. The Genesis GV80 features an unapologetically sporty aesthetic. Ray Hall, um, Galvapal of the of Trend Hunter. As you spoke about on an earlier show, it's actually an exciting time to be a car maker. For the first time, and this from my memory, we're seeing car companies pour money into design and aesthetics. The concept of headlights are being completely uh, rethought. Luxury SUV maker Genesis looks to take things to the next level by wrapping the head and rear lights around the side of the car in order to make a, the car appear visually streaky. Overall, a pretty sharp upgrade from a car series that, if you look at right now, it doesn't look much better than, you know, Grandpa's Sunday Cruiser. Though I imagine <laughs> something like this might get you murdered if you decide to, you know, lock or unlock your car at a star party. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> in case you're wondering, GV80s start uh, currently at 55K. Imagine that price going up once they have the new design. So. You know, uh, reading this article and looking at it, uh, I was wondering, what if what if one of those lights go out? Like, that's got to be a pain to replace. <laughs> that's a good question. Because I know a lot of these manufacturers are really rethinking how to design lights, headlights sure. on the car. And okay. many of them are trying to find a way to create a non-glare, because glare has become a major issue now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, how much is it going to cost? How do you do it? It's all going to be specialized. You have to, you know, it's not like the current times when, at least for my car... I have a Subaru just go down the store, like AutoZone, get a new light bulb. Cost what? Now oh, 20 bucks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't see this car allowing you to do something like that. Maybe you have to have subscription for the headlights. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Shenzhen's <laughs> Shichong has been named the first international dark sky community in China, which is pretty exciting news for our Chinese friends. It's the first of its kind in China, the international dark sky celebrates Shichen's amazing dedication to preservation of night sky. Shichen Dapong New District, which sits on the southern tip of China, roughly an hour drive from the Shichen city uh, proper. Congratulations to Dark Sky for being able to add another one to the list. Is there anything else you want to have people be aware of uh, with this one? I know you guys added another one down in New Zealand as well. Uh, I, well, so I think, yeah, there was one in New Zealand. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, um, <laughs> but there was, uh, there's also dark sky community down in, uh, bee cave, Texas, uh, kind of down in the hill country around the Austin area that, um, recently got designated too. Um, so we, uh, we love adding communities and urban areas to the dark sky places program. Um, you know, parks, sanctuaries, and reserves are more or less easier. I put that in quotes, um, there's different stipulations for these certifications, uh, but for park sanctuaries and reserves, there's usually less populated areas already. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they still require cooperation and changes from nearby municipalities, uh, but towns and communities, more urbanized places, uh, 
when they take the charge to commit to changing light lighting in the name of dark sky preservation, that's really exciting. Um, and it's a great way to bring in business, uh, you know, tourism, yeah. cause you can use, that's another promoting another selling point. So I think it's a great way to market the community. And we love seeing that list of international dark sky communities grow. Yeah, definitely. So congratulations to these guys. Yeah. And I, I remember being out in Hong Kong and the, that that area is not very dark in any <laughs> in any no. stretch of the word. <laughs> not at all. Now it's like New York over there, I think. Yeah, and they have a light show that that goes on at eight p.m. every night. <laughs> oh, how festive! Yeah. Uh, Donegal Dark Sky aiming to draw more young people to the world of astrophotography from the Donegal News. The brilliant northern lights this year have piqued the interest of more than just a few Irish folk. Photography enthusiasts look to keep the ball rolling by enticing folks of all ages, especially young, into taking photos of the heavens. And with cell phone cameras as good as they are, I think pretty much anyone can do this with a rudimentary lunar to even some uh, pretty, you know, mild Milky Way shots. Have Bonnie, have you used your phone to actually try and capture anything in the sky? Yeah, wait, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, so I think that article was really nice to hear. Uh, I, I just want to say, like, the Northern Lights are a stunning natural phenomenon. And it's always great to see people, like, taking pictures of it or, like, show interest in taking pictures of it. Um, and, yes, back to your question. I do use my phone to take um, pictures of the sky. But it's not as, like... I don't know. It's not as like the quality I expect to see, like when professionals take it. You know? <laughs> like I just see like kind of a blob, like a blob, when I take it, because it's just kind of blurry. But I try my best. <laughs> it's the technology's getting there for cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Samsung. Oh, yeah. Do you have a Samsung or Apple? Um, I have an Apple. Yeah, I think Samsung's ahead of the game on this one. Yeah. I've seen some pretty dang good astro photos from a yeah, Samsung. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Bonnie, the, it, the phones are catching up, but the fun thing about astrophotography is it takes a long time. Yeah. You know, a lot of those pictures that you see are, you know, edited, lo- you know, and their process and they got long exposures and everything like that. And, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I remember the, my first astro photo was holding my, try to hold my iPhone up to the eyepiece of my, one of my telescopes <laughs> taking a picture at the moon. And it's like, it just looks terrible, but I just think, Oh, this is the best picture ever taken by anyone. So I mean, at least it worked. Uh, it it kind of worked, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of everybody's first astro photo. Like when they go to a star yeah. party, they're like, Oh, I got to take a picture of it. It doesn't turn out anything like what you see online, mm-hmm. but at least you got it on your phone and you can show it to people and, <laughs> Uh, I want, you know, a quote from this article, you know, they said it was, you know, astrophotography helps learn about the night sky and it's more than just taking pictures. And I agree with that. I think it's, it's a way to help bring people to this movement, you know, and, and art tells the truth about things. Yeah. And I think encouraging like younger people to take interest in astrophotography can be a great way to, like, you know, inspire like a love for science and astronomy. Like even though my pictures were like really valid, I still like got like interested in astronomy through just trying to take pictures. 
of the dark side. And it just like kind of like helped me develop like skills, like being patient, like attentive to detail and like appreciation for the beauty and complexity of the world, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely something. Yeah, there is a telescope out there now that you can set up and it will actually be able to just to take pictures of the nighttime sky. And it's honestly not, it's expensive, but it's not really expensive. Um, it, is that the EV scope? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could, yeah, you can buy a whole rig and set up and you can make a, your own telescope more expensive than that. So uh, it starts, that's the, that's the AP of the future right there. Right. It starts at 2000. And honestly, if we could get more of those in, um, in cities, I think that would be a game changer for, for kids to be able to actually access nighttime time. science. Uh, so to your point, Bonnie, you know, like everyone's curious, right? I look at some of this stuff, you know, getting people into doing photography for night skies, same way you see for, you know, like say birding, you have people out there, it's like a game. They want to be able mm-hmm. to count. They want to be able to see as many species as they want. Then they get their cameras out. It becomes even more of a game because then they have to show it off these images to their <laughs> friends who usually don't really care that much about the yeah. birds, <laughs> but it's still pretty fun. You know, it gets them really into it. Mike, to your point, it gets you to really pay attention to details, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, oh yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, moving Sorry, away. I'm sorry, Bonnie. You had... I'm sorry. It's harder than it looks. Like I see professionals take like oh amazing pictures all the time, and when I do it, it's like what is this? <laughs> you barely see anything. Let me let me move us on here a little bit. Darren Fox lights the beam after the Kings' first playoff win since April 30th, 2006. This comes to us from ESPN. Sacramento Kings fans have a reason to rejoice finally as the recording time of this show. Game seven, first round of the NBA playoffs uh, actually has been playing for a little bit now. I don't know what the score is, but should Sacramento beat Golden State, expect a mega purple signal akin to channeling your inner Batman into the sky. The bright glowing purple beam, which had to be cleared by the FAA, is lit up following every victory until midnight as a symbol of unity for the city and the team. Outside of the arena, a giant purple LED billboard calls out prior to lighting the beam, light the beam in flashy moving uh, LED letters. For those of you at home who are having trouble trying to visualize this, just imagine taking the dual trade center tower light beams that go to nowhere and turning them purple and then putting it on top of an arena in Sacramento. And that's what we're looking at there. <laughs> Finally, we have one last quick hit here, and that's a mysterious spiral that looks like hazy glowing galaxies Seen hovering over Alaska's Northern Lights, Lee Cohen, CBS News. Many of you are aware that we're entering the sun's solar maximum, which provides brilliant nighttime aurora shows in high latitudes. However, how about this? Northern Lights photographers became mystified when a giant white galaxy-like spiral appeared in their images. Elizabeth Withnall witnessed the phenomenon from her home in northern Alaska. Per Withnall, I always see strange things in the sky. But this was insane. With no hope, the mystery spiral signaled the emergence of an alien spaceship. Uh, But much to her dismay, it appears the spiral was frozen fuel ejected from SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets. Maybe next time, Elizabeth, we'll get those aliens. (laughs) (laughs) It's always next time. (laughs) That signals to us a good time to take a breather. We've been going strong this afternoon. 
For those of you not aware, this show is recorded on Sunday afternoons, and I'm very, very thankful for my panel this month. Hailing from a unique and wonderful South Jersey, we have Bonnie Peng and our friend Dark Sky's own, although we may need to borrow him, at least his expertise from time to time, is Michael Reimer. Thank you guys for, for joining. It's great to have you guys here. Um, I want to quickly make everyone at home aware that everything you're hearing today, you can read about on our website at Light Pollution News. You can also learn about dark sky friendly lighting solutions from your yard to your pool. You can also follow us on Instagram at light.pollution.news. And why not have your voice heard? Join us over at Reddit at r slash pollution, light pollution news. Uh, before we go any further, I'm curious to what's going on in everyone's lives. Uh, Michael, anything new being rolled out over at Dark Sky? Yeah, so we, uh, as as you mentioned, I think earlier, we just wrapped up International Dark Sky Week uh, at the end of last week, or I should say the beginning of last week, the 15th through the 22nd of April. And we had a huge success. Uh, Bonnie was a big part of that. Uh, we had 91 International Dark Sky Week proclamations. Uh, which are uh, just symbolic documents signed by like your mayor or your council uh, or your governor, uh, just the leader of your, of your community, just making the declaration of, Hey, this week is international dark sky week. So our goal this year was to get 91 or I'm sorry, it was to get a hundred. We got 91, including Bonnie's for Atlantic city. Right. All right. Atlanta counties, excuse me. So, you know, <laughs> great, great work there. We had uh, over a hundred events just submitted to us alone. Uh, that number is much bigger of actual events that were hosted around the world to celebrate. So, very successful International Dark Sky Week, and then uh, very soon this coming month in May, we are kicking off our capture the dark photo contest. So we're talking about astrophotography. Uh, if you got uh, photo skills um, in the dark, if you got chops for it, uh, you can enter your photograph into our contest uh, for some pretty cool prizes. Um, so that's uh, that's going to kick off here soon and go all summer. So that's what we got going on right now at dark sky. You guys are busy, very busy. <laughs> year round man <laughs> body i want to hear about the proclamation what happened down Lenox um, county don't worry okay so um <laughs> like michael said um yes i did get my first proclamation passed for Lenox county um it was like really cool like the process itself um i had to meet up with like a county commissioner and she kind of helped me get that thing passed and then i got like one of those cool folders with like one of those official signatures it was really cool mm-hmm. and um I just say I love presenting the issue to like um, in like a room. So I was in like this room with like all the county commissioners and like I'm kind of sarcastic. So when I was giving my speech, I'm like, like pollution. I was like, it was like my way of saying like, hey, so um, our earth's dying. Um, Turn off your lights, you know, (laughs) and then it was super fun and like a new experience for me. I got to meet a lot of new people and oh, I forgot to mention something else. If you're a member of um, International Dark Sky Association, um, look out in your mailboxes for the Nightscapes magazine for the month of June, because I have a surprise feature in there where I talk about like my personal experiences with the night sky. And I think that's pretty much what happened this month. Just a lot of like idea study stuff. Wow, that sounds great. Definitely will be looking out for that. Congratulations, Bonnie. 
Very exciting news. Next up, why it's time for Worldwide's Lights Out program by Brian Handwork of the Smithsonian Magazine. Per Handwork, lights have allowed us to capture many more hours for work and play. They've driven economic growth and social connections. They've made us feel safe. Turning out the lights seems unthinkable, yet a lack of thought has produced enormous amounts of unnecessary and misdirected lighting. Handwork continues. 80% of the world's population lives under sky glow. And in the U.S. and Europe, make that 99%. Light pollution increased over half in the past 25 years and is growing at 2% at a compounding rate per year, outpacing current population growth. The article shows side-by-side night sky images taken of Cambridge, Massachusetts, one taken on at 2.40 a.m. on May 13, 1850, and the other taken at 2.40 a.m. on May 13, 2020. The 1851, no shock, showed roughly 150 stars, and the 2021 showed eight. I think there's a little difference in the technology there, so you can extrapolate mm-hmm. as you will for the how bright the skies probably were 170 years prior. The article goes on to cite numerous examples of how artificial light disrupts and endangers nighttime species. As the light goes up, insect populations continue their staggering fall. Take, for instance, the cabbage moth, which only operates and reproduces in the dark. Light disrupts the female moth's ability to produce pheromones and attract mates. Per the article, some flowering plants, including bananas and mangoes, open at night to attract pollinating bats and insects and are thus at risk when the nocturnal environment stops being nocturnal. There's been a lot of studies on ecology. There's been a lot of studies on uh, how you know ecological behavior changes. But this, this growth, I want to look at that growth, that 2% compounding rate growth. How much of that do you think, Mike, is, is coming from, say, the fact that LEDs are so readily available? Going back to, to the earlier article uh, where the here come the lumens, how much of that is just the fact that there's a segment of the population that really just want things lit up and oh, they're yeah. kind of filling that void. But I feel like it's got to slow down at some point. I think it'll, you know, you, you haven't noted here that it's outpacing population growth. I think with population growth, we see urbanization. We see, you know, the sprawling, the urban sprawl. Uh, Dallas Fort Worth is a great example of that. You know, it's, yeah, you, you guys up there in the North, everything's kind of built up. Uh, but, and that's probably changing. I, you know, I'm not saying that's strictly uniquely to the Northeast, but, you know, in DFW, everything's spread out because there's land. So, you know, places that are 45 minutes to an hour drive from the heart of downtown Dallas, you're still seeing a huge amount of sky glow, not just from Dallas, but from surrounding suburbs because these places are just growing. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing in this, in this light pollution increase, especially in the U S that more and more people are moving away from city hubs. And so these suburban areas are becoming a little bit more urbanized because you live an hour from the city who wants to go to the city. Every time they want to go out, they want to go somewhere where it's a little bit more accessible, closer to home. So you got more people, you got more industry, more, uh, commerce 
um, you know, you, you've got these places where people just want to go hang out and eat and they want those places lit up at night too. So uh, I think that's a huge part of it is that our cities are growing, our suburbs are growing. Um, so it, that compounded with these excessively bright light bulbs and these fixtures and led boards all over the place. It's, it's a recipe for absolute disaster. And yeah, it's wrecking havoc on our ecological systems and we're going to feel the effects down the road for sure. I have a friend who's also like, he's in North Jersey. And then I think he, um, he was like outside watching like the sky, I guess. And then like across from the, I guess not really ocean, but kind of like a lake area. You could see the Atlantic City casino lighting from like where he lives. And I thought that was just crazy because, you know, I was like, yeah. miles away. You could see like <laughs> the effects of the uh, light pollution. Yeah, no doubt. I, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, casinos are, are very interesting places when it comes to lights. <laughs> <laughs> so in a similar article, um, Blaine Brottle of Architect Magazine discusses Johan Elkoff's new book, The Darkness Manifesto, on light pollution, night ecology, and the ancient rhythms that sustain life in his article, The Consequence of Light Pollution. Brunel recounts that in many contexts, electric lighting may be altogether unnecessary. Photoluminescent materials can be incorporated into path surfacing to enable effective wayfinding without risking light pollution or the need for carbon emitting LEDs. Elkoff used a Polish bike path as an example of photoluminescent design. The path is very, very visually interesting, cool to look at. It glows fully blue across the whole width, harnessing the power of sunlight to produce a natural nighttime glow. And it can emit for upwards of 10 hours. And the Ambronal surmises that any curtailing of humanity's addiction to increasing and excessive external nighttime light must overcome our very own fear of the dark. Brownell goes on to suggest the counterintuitive nature is very deep for architects who have long defined their relationship in architecture as masterly, correct, and magnificent play of the masses brought together in light. That last quote there is very telling. Uh, Mike, have you guys dealt a lot with architects? Is there... We have some uh very active advocates who are lighting designers and they're the ones that work you know closest with the architects i haven't met any architects personally um i don't think so at least um but yeah we work with a lot of lighting designers who who work in that world for sure um designing fun things like you know like this photoluminescent uh bike path um which you know, is using really, really cool. You got to oh, take awesome. a look at it's this. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I definitely. I'm looking at the article and it's like, this is so cool and it's simple, but it, it, it makes the environment like more welcoming. You know, I, it, to me personally, you know, when something's overlit and it's just bright bluish white light, I just don't feel welcome when it's, when it's low light, I feel like it's more intimate. I feel like I'm connecting more with where I am. Uh, now that's a personal thing. I know some people may feel different and I get that. Um, but I think stuff like this is something definitely worth investing in. Um, cause if, if the ultimate goal is to illuminate something, 
all right, well, this does it, you know, and it does it in a, in a way that's responsible and ecologically friendly. So I wish we'd have more of this type of thing. And um, yeah, Johan Ekloff's uh, book, Darkness Manifesto is supposed to be incredible. Uh, I haven't read it yet. Unfortunately, I'm looking forward to doing so, but he actually joined by Paul Bogard, uh, who wrote end of night. Uh, they both discussed Johan's book, uh, the Sunday of International Dark Sky Week uh, with us that we streamed to our YouTube and Facebook pages. So if you want to see him discuss that book, uh, go to our YouTube channel and look for the live videos. And uh, yeah, it's the Darkness Manifesto and he and Paul talk about it. It's great. It's it's supposed to be phenomenal. Bonnie, I see you have a hand up over there. Yeah, so I'm going to go back a little bit. So as like Renell knows, um, overcoming humanity's addiction to external nighttime lighting requires like us to shift um, like our attitudes towards darkness, which is like you know our fear of the dark. It's probably deeply ingrained in many of us. Um, so it may take like it may be more difficult to adopt new or like less intrusive lighting solutions. And for like architects, I'm not really like familiar with that sphere, like study at all, but I can kind of imagine like they may struggle with this shift because they have traditionally viewed light as like a key element in their designs, you know, and like as the awareness of more negative impacts of light pollution grows, I feel like architects and designers will need to find new ways to balance the need for functioning, like functional lighting with the desire to also protect the natural environment and human health. Yeah, that's a good point, Bonnie. I think LEDs though might actually offer if the, if placed right, I think it might actually offer architects a way to do both. Okay, wait. So here's the thing. So um, recently, I've actually wrote a research paper on LED lighting, and um, let's hear it. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me get my train of thought. Um, so in my paper, I talked about like uh, there's a common misconception with LED lighting, and um, I use like a lot of expert studies for this one. So. Um, we think like, oh, LED lightings are great. They're environmental friendly. They run on like low cost. They're very highly effective. But the thing is, um, if you didn't know, most LED lightings that we use, like the majority of them contain blue lighting. And I think you mentioned something with blue lighting later on in the articles that you addressed. So blue lighting actually is proven to cause like uh, melatonin altering things like cancer and stuff like that. Next time, I don't know, you guys go blue, like LED lighting shopping. Just keep on the lookout for like those that contain blue lighting because they're not 100% as safe as people describe them. Yeah, we will be talking about that a little later in this episode. But that's a that brings up a very interesting point. There's a little shift out there of people. like It's a small undercurrent economy that you can get a whole bunch of glow-in-the-dark stuff for your house, yeah. for your yards, for, mm-hmm. um, when I go stargazing, actually, I use glow in the dark tape all around my stuff. So that way I can see it at night. And yeah. no, it's very smart. Yeah. It, it it's, it's kind of a, a cool way to approach night because you can see with, mm-hmm. you know, the glow in the dark stuff and it's not really doing anything to any, anybody that I know. Of. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah re- using reflective surfaces around your house is, is always a good idea. Cause they don't, you know, they don't emit the light. They only reflect it. So if you're driving by, you'll see it, but if there's no vehicles. You're not going to see it. So 
Yeah, it's always a good idea. Well, on the ecology front, a new study from Ohio State suggests that light pollution may impact mosquito metabolism. And this study, light pollution disrupts seasonal differences in daily activity and metabolic profiles of the northern house mosquito. Comes to us from the journal Insects. Uh, Given that light pollution affects circadian rhythms of other insects, it should be no surprise that the findings indicated that the length of the day determines when mosquitoes suspend their development in winter months and that increased levels of light at night drove mosquitoes to continue being active later into the fall. Past times in the year where day day length hours normally start receding. Uh, The authors concluded that artificial light at night affected the patterns of mosquitoes' abilities to obtain nutrients for surviving in the winter, uh, thereby suggesting that a longer mosquito season, bad for humans, but a more challenging environment for mosquitoes to longevity year over year due to inadequate nutrition in surviving uh, their diapause, which diapause is really just the the suspension of their uh, physical development. So the research team used 24 mosquitoes in their observations and are currently looking to test this hypothesis in the field. Bonnie, yes. Okay, so um, I read a lot of papers here and there, but um, this is something also very up my alley, not because I'm a mosquito enthusiast. I do not like them. But because um, I recently wrote another paper on this matter, and I have to say, first, um, the research paper just confirms like when there is artificial light at night, mosquitoes um their activity levels are like rather low um as opposed to when there is artificial when sorry when there is no artificial light at night that the mosquitoes activities are higher and i thought that was really like counterintuitive mm-hmm. because like so like mosquitoes like most insects cannot tell when it's day or nighttime so like you know the light kind of confuses them at nighttime and with extended periods of quote-unquote, daytime, when in reality it's just artificial light at night. Um, their circadian cycle is definitely affected. And this actually means bad news for humans because they will be feeding on us for a longer period of time. And their potential for carrying, like, airborne diseases is also, like, kind of bad for us. Yeah, um, it could be. It could it could rise, right? Yeah. I read in another article by Eric Fender on the effects of urban evolution. And then he makes a point like mosquitoes and insects, they actually have actually, yeah, they actually have built immunity to anti-pesticides, which makes this effect 10 times worse because personally, I would not be happy with mosquitoes attacking me at 24 seven. Yeah, no doubt. This sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Well, we have some quick hits here and, uh, this one, this one's interesting. It's a little scary. Coming to us from the San Francisco gate, an unnamed 61-year-old woman went missing after she left her Death Valley astrophotography group to retrieve something from her car. The group was headed over to Badwater Basin, and they alerted the rangers when she didn't return. Park rangers arrived around 2.30 a.m. and commenced searching on foot with the help of brightly lit vehicles uh, all over the place. Fearing for the worst, park rangers even sent a request to California Highway Patrol for a helicopter. However, the woman was eventually spotted two miles past the Badwater Basin parking lot at 8.20 a.m. Uh, very glad to hear that she ended up safe reuniting with the group 
In such environments, I suspect flashlights really don't provide as much assistance as people would uh, give credence to. In my experience, when in a really dark place is the light, especially white light, can sometimes just make trails in natural areas kind of look two-dimensional. You can't really tell the depth of the actual area. Uh, however, I don't want to speak for what actually occurred there, but it's obvious any number of situations could have popped up. We're glad that she is very safe and, and nothing bad happened. Um, yeah, that started off scary. Yeah, well, buddy system is the way to go here. <laughs> if, if it's dark and you're in Death Valley, don't walk anywhere by yourself. No doubt, no doubt. I feel uh, like we talked about Death Valley before on this. Podcast. Well, yeah, Death Valley does a lot of outreach. They do a lot of uh, yeah. People go out there for a lot of photography, and you know, yeah. it's a naturally dark place. So, mm-hmm. uh, in other news, a rather interesting device out of the. Con Expo, that is Construction Industry Expo, allows road workers to utilize better lighting when working at night. Uh, Blue Virgil developed a high-intensity tethered LED array to a drone to provide more direct and uniform lighting in a road work environment that potentially has never been done before. Uh, Compared to current setups that use light towers, often poorly angled ones at best, the tethered drone offers brighter and better directed lighting, potentially negating dangerous glare, shadows um, that affect workers that can have drivers may not be able to see some of the workers as well uh, that can affect residential environments, wildlife, and motorists. Um, so, yeah, I think poorly angled lighting is very dangerous for, like, everyone. Like, nighttime drivers, um, like, if you ever drive your car on the road at night, you notice, like, more headlight glares than what's actually seen on the road. Like, that is a problem. Like, um, the development of a tethered LED array drone for road work lighting is an interesting innovation. Um, I think it has potential to provide better directed and brighter lighting for road workers at night, which could help improve safety and reduce the risk of accidents. Of course, this also comes at, like, a limitation of, like, oh, we need to invest in this for like long-term solution. Yeah, I think it's a really useful tool for road work. Uh, I I, can, I agree with you. When you're driving down the road, especially you'll see the light towers or blind go right in your eyes. You won't be able to see the workers because the yeah. contrast is apparent. And you won't. You'll just be blinded by that glare, right? Yeah. So I think this is very useful. Have a light come top down, and uh, it's a win for all parties here. But keeping with the topic of innovative lighting, this one comes to us from the beautiful hellscape that is Twitter. Hmm. A video showing corresponding green, red, glowing traffic signal poles uh, is making its way around. Currently in use in various parts of the world, including parts of India and Turkey, uniform light switches harness the lumen power of LEDs to provide a solid color traffic signal from traffic light, the actual fixture all the way down the pole to the curbside. To put in layman's term, the whole pole, including the traffic signal itself, is either green or red, depending on the signal. I'm curious about your guys' feelings on this one. I feel like this is, uh, I don't know, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, um, I think it's unclear whether this technology will be like widely adopted. Um, it's encouraging to see innovative solutions being explored. To address the challenges of modern urban environments, 
Well, as with like any new technology, it will be important to ensure that the signal poles are safe and reliable and that they do not create unnecessary visual distractions or confusion for drivers and pedestrians. Also, I kind of want to touch base on like another like LED lighting, you know, they're dangerous in a way, they're like human health. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my take on that. It's an interesting idea for controlling traffic. I think we have a lot of bad uses for LEDs that are constantly being shown, usually mm-hmm. in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, Mike, probably my your neighborhood. neighborhood. Uh, from an ecological standpoint, from probably like a light pollution standpoint, it's probably not the best thing. But is this not a good use of I see where they're coming from. LED fixtures, like of lighting in general? Mike, you have any it, thoughts on that? When I saw it, it looked like it was just something more for aesthetics rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pra- you know, the practical application, unless, yeah, you know, it's just higher visibility of the traffic lights. So if you're farther away from the intersection, maybe you can see what the light situation is from a better distance. Yeah, um, but I don't know. I it, it To me, at first glance, it looked like it was just more of an aesthetic thing. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I think using lights for aesthetics just for fun, uh, mm-hmm. I, I I, I know it can be done in a in a good way, but something like this, it didn't strike me as something that was very practical. So I don't know. Yeah, I agree. You're a hater, Mike, right? Just a hater. Big time. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Before moving on to our policy segment, I came across this article. You're definitely suffering the effects of light pollution, but we're here to help. And House Beautiful by Magdina St. Elian. Among the many useful tips in this article, St. Elian suggests that uh, if your spouse can't turn off that TV while you're in bed, it may be time for a sleep divorce. Quoted in the article, Corbin Philhauer of the Development for Visual Comfort and Company, a dark sky lighting directs light downward and away from the sky, reducing light trespass. Further, Philhauer's point, he suggests utilizing motion sensor lighting to ensure lights aren't left on all night. This article lists out six feature products, including two dark sky compliant wall sconces and one. 7,000 lumen unshielded barn light. I'll just leave that one right there. Mm. To St. Elian's credit, the article does touch on the dangers of blue light at night, which, Bonnie, you have mentioned a couple times here, and implicates lighting in a series of issues ranging from ecological concerns to sleep issues. Uh, I have like a personal anecdote on this. Uh, when I was younger, like a little younger, because <laughs> I'm kind of still young, but my parents, like, will not let me sleep with any source of lighting in the room. Like, by that, I mean, like, lighting found, like, on the side of your devices, like, phones, lighting in general, like, li- any light in general, like, absolutely no lighting. And I'm so glad she did that, because now understanding how dangerous blue lighting can be at night, and especially for, like, younger people who are still developing. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know with uh, my nephews, we're the same way. They, they can't have any lights in a room at night. So, yeah, to to your point, Bonnie, you can get uh, night light LEDs that are just like red lights, which is interesting. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. if, you know, you, you want to keep your night vision, don't want to have it really affect you at night, uh, don't want to have any of the health effects, you just have a night light. You can have red light, just plug it in the wall. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I think I just sleep better with like no lighting, to be honest, but that's just me. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and make that three. Yeah, I... Yeah. I can't. Have, I can't have light in my room. Um, and when I go stay like an Airbnb or a hotel, like I'm 
think I think this article kind of points that out. Like I try to cover up every little tiny LED light in the room if yeah, possible. Like, or like what you're talking about, like the tiny LED lights. I'm sure like all our devices, like the side of our computers, the little blue lighting thing, maybe it's white, but um, they have like these covers for them, like specifically designed to cover that type of lighting because that is a source of blue lighting. And I'm like curious, like where can I buy them? Yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> well, we're about to begin our final descent, folks. Stay with us as our policy segment will double over as our Afraid of Dark segment. We'll just kind of run those together a little bit. Uh, you won't want to miss this month's research news. That is all coming up next. But first, I want to thank our guests for the very insightful knowledge. This has been a very fun show. Uh, so glad that both of you could come on, including always insightful Bonnie Pang. And Bonnie, definitely now your proclamation maker and uh, practically mm-hmm. mayor and uh, you know county supervisor of Atlanta <laughs> County. So Definitely. it's always great well, to have you on. I love your perspective. And so, thank you. so thank you. And Michael Reimer of the of Dark Sky, formerly known as International Dark Sky Association. Uh, Michael, where can people find out about you and how can they learn more about Dark Sky? So definitely go to darksky.org where you will find all the information that I kind of mentioned here today. And of course, much, much more. Uh, we invite you to become Dark Sky Advocates by going to that website and uh, learning how to join the network. Uh, and then you'll be plugged in with other advocates around the world uh, via Slack. We use Slack to communicate. So Bonnie's on there. She's very active. Uh, we have people from coast to coast in the U.S. And, you know, every, every part of the world, uh, advocates are ready to talk and ready to share experiences and ideas and encouragement. So definitely get involved that way. Uh, you can find me at michael.reimer at darksky.org as well as Slack. Um, and then, yeah, you can go to uh, the IDA Facebook page, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, of course. Uh, we're on all the social networks. So plenty of places to connect with us. And I encourage you to start with the website in Definitely sign up to become an advocate. We we want as many advocates as possible. So yeah, we, uh, we encourage that. Oh, thank you for your work, Mike. Uh, you guys are doing a great job, and um, very very thankful for everything you guys do, especially in the coordination level. I mean, it, it really can't be done without you. Uh, we appreciate everybody doing the work that everybody's doing, and you know, Bonnie is a good example of that. So, man, Bonnie, that's that's another thing I love about you. you're like endless energy it's great you you can just keep going and, and plow through stuff it's inspires me personally and i <laughs> oh, i'm happy thank you do you have anywhere that you want people to f- learn more about you or um i i am an advocate for ida so i, I have a little description on the website like on the map thing do you want to talk about that what what does the advocate entail for um, those who who may not be aware of what an advocate does uh, Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. So, Bonnie, I think you were delegate, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Delegate. Now, is that like a level yeah. up? How are you? Are they just separate, know. separate but equal? <laughs> I just know I'm in like this community. Yeah. Delegates are, uh, Bill, they're, they're people who are advocates for over three months and are very active. And it costs nothing to be an advocate. It also costs nothing to be a delegate. So, all you have to do to become a delegate, you reach out to me or Betty Maya, uh, Betty Maya Foot, the director of engagement with the IDA, and just tell us 
what you want to become a delegate for, uh, what area you want to be a delegate in. And then you become kind of a local point of contact that is seen on our website. So when you go to sign up to become an advocate, you can be a, you can see where IDA is and you'll see a big old map of our chapters and our delegates, uh, where, and where they're located. So yeah, Bonnie is an ad as a delegate in New Jersey and you can go find her on the website. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. (laughs) And and Betty Meyer for, I might add, you have to really compete for those astrophotography photos to beat hers. She has some Mm -hmm. phenomenal ones I've seen on on Instagram out there. Very much so. Well, before we go on, one last reminder, you can find all the details about the show, links, uh, lighting suggestions, for, and more over at our website, lightpollutionnews.com. Follow us on Instagram at light.pollution.news. Uh, you can also, did you know we had a Reddit? Uh, we have a Reddit. We, we post all of our articles there. So you can see the show notes and the actual listing of all the articles, including you can see some of the great, um, if you want to see Sacramento Kings, uh, light. <laughs> bomb that they have or you the light tower you want to see uh the the twitter item we referenced in there is all going to be on our reddit uh light pollution news most important thing for you at home is last but not least listeners like you really help us do what we're doing uh if you're interested in helping spread the word simply go out wherever you're listening to this podcast and give us a five-star review rating anything that can uh, really boost the recognition of the show we appreciate all the support, and this show is no small feat of strength on our end. Uh, it is like a, a full month buildup. Uh, so I really thank you in advance for all your support. And now how about we, we land this thing? We've been talking for over an hour, and um, now we're going to get into some of the, the meat of the show, right? It's time. You thought I forgot about it. Let's talk policy. And maybe we'll transition into the Afraid of the Dark segment while we're at it. What the hell? Do you remember that idiotically named Inflation Reduction Act? Did you expect the money to be used for new streetlights? Well, I got news for you. If you said no, I'll just say I admire the optimism. I guess the issue with streetlights really isn't the fact that the streets are lit, at least to me. That's not the concern, right? It's the boneheadedness of public officials that nearly always accompany these new plans. $3 million in federal dollars are headed to Norfolk, Virginia to upgrade all of their 28,000 streetlights away from high-pressure sodium lights. Currently, city officials cite HPS lighting as hindering law enforcement from identifying the color of vehicles and identifying perps, perpetrators. Apparently, their high-pressure sodium lights only emit strong orange spectrum that prevents anyone from seeing the color. They're not low-pressure, I don't believe. I think they only have high-pressure. The new lighting will no doubt be much whiter. Though temperatures were not given, they will also be much brighter. Per Norfolk City website, although it's recognized that a certain amount of illumination will spill onto private properties, no shielding or shading of any type will be authorized in order to prevent this from occurring. How kind of Norfolk. (laughs) And there's more. Mayor Gloria of San Diego highlighted federal funding for streetlight repairs in multiple areas of the city. Looks like San Diego has a marginally better congressman than Norfolk, their guys scored them $3.5 million in federal funding of street lighting. Unlike Norfolk, where the city had the common courtesy to downlight, San Diego is looking to repair and without a doubt significantly brighten up acorn-style streetlights that sit atop a pole kind of resembling a candle in the communities of Pacific Beach, 
Point Loma, and Logan Heights. Kern Leiter's 70 years old and a suffer from sizable electrical failures. Career tip. If you're an electrician, I believe your golden age has arrived. <laughs> One last note, Frederick, Maryland plans to update their street lighting to the lumen power of 11 because why not? Bright lights prevent crimes, right? But good news for those of you who live there. Mayor appears to have heard both ends of the story and will look to provide shielding so the light does not enter the homeowner's property. Well, that's kind of nice. Hmm. So, <laughs> Bonnie, yes, I see, see you have your hand raised. For the first article he talked about, like how funding will not be towards better and improved lighting. I think that adequate street lighting is an important aspect of public safety and ensuring that streets are well lit is very important. But like, as you suggest, the issue often lies in how public officials approach street lighting projects. Um, there have been numerous instances where officials have made like, poor decisions regarding the placement and this, like, the design of street lights, which leads to like issues like light pollution, glare, and wasted energy. Speaking of wasted energy, according to the IDA Association, I read that like a third of the lighting at nighttime remains wasted and unused, totaling up to like $2.2 billion annually. Now, this is just me, but if I were with the government, I would take that like $2.2 billion into consideration of like the wasted lighting and probably invest that in like better shielding and improvements in nighttime technology for like more sustainable, a more sustainable future, whether that is like adding motion sensors. Or even using plants to like counterbalance the fact that since so much energy is being wasted, like with the excess CO2 being emitted into the atmosphere, that more plants would definitely help with that balance. Well, last last month we had an article of a community in Florida that was <laughs> essentially lighting up the whole their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Like it was like a highway truck stop. It was pretty pretty amazing. It was like a pilot. Like you, a pilot gas station, you know, that's, that's what to expect in uh, Pompano Beach, Florida. That was so, so I do think that um, the public officials, in some ways, they may be constrained by uh, either contracts or, you know, they may be doing what really needs to be done from a logical and from a um, very deliberate sense. So they may be thinking that, that what they're doing is right. And I'm not going to knock them for that. I, I do think that. Let's, well, how about we move into our Afraid of Dark Seven? Because this is where the the narrative is where my criticisms of public officials come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rounding out to our Afraid of Dark segment, the segment where we enjoy humankind's beloved infatuation with extinguishing everything nighttime. We take a stroll through two topics before we make our final destination this month, uh, both dealing with lights, apparent safety, Never mind the fact that most crimes occur from noon through 9 p.m. We start with an article by Maria Christina Florian of Arch Daily, The Safety of Light, The Short History of Light in Public Spaces. Florian attempts to recount the history of lighting specifically with a bend on safety. Some of the more intriguing points Florian showcases include the following. The first documented use of light at night uh, was actually used to discriminate subjugate People in New York City, 19th century New York City, whereby anyone who was not white was required by law to carry lanterns when walking unaccompanied at night. Unaccompanied meaning you were not with a white person. Second, there are many American Midwestern towns that employed a French idea of light towers, pinning downward 
facing lights up of about 150 to 450 feet to light up whole towns and whole blocks. It was a project that was quoted as being more spectacular than efficient, according to one commentator. These were arc lights, right? Hmm. Third, per Florian, modern-day city lights can reveal discrimination through both restricted access to adequate lighting resources or being imposed harsh and bright lights to impose surveillance and public order. Keep that last one in mind. As we go forward, the second piece I have here, we take a look at a story closer to home for me, at the very least, and maybe Bonnie. Media conflates poverty with crime. And per NBC10 here in Philadelphia, Camden working to fix streetlight outages to help make communities safer. Jersey has been a rough area for quite some time. It's no secret that Camden is a community that has faced hardship and challenges. However, that narrative of fear and crime falls into place a bit too well in this one. It's almost as if the politicians and the media are colluding here. Leaders cheered on a new initiative to put in functioning streetlights in neighborhoods. Hopes that once the streetlights come in, uh, you know, gun violence will become a foregone thing of the past. Per the Camden police representative, it's very, this is very important uh, for crime prevention in the city. Um, there's many studies out there that benefit that showcase the benefits of a well-lit community, encourages people to stay out later. The narrative of fear and crime, especially in a historically disadvantaged community like Camden, is even more perplexing when the numbers indicate that crime has not only fallen year over year, uh, but is significantly down from where it was 10 years ago. Many things have changed in that time, including deeper community integration, hence the new streetlights, and outside investments in the general area. And on that note, I'll bring up a recent research article in Urban Planning titled Natural Surveillance for Crime and Traffic Accidents, Simulating Improvements of Street Lighting in an Older Community. The article essentially says more lighting equates to safety. However, this study doesn't have any crime statistics in it. Instead, safety was narrowly defined by simply being able to identify a person's facial features. So having light that was applicable to be able to show someone's facial features. Streetlights certainly have a place in, in safety. They can help prevent pedestrian death, and they can help law enforcement identify criminals. However, in the past year, I've had no less than four people tell me, quote, there are many studies out there. But not one of those folks has been able to present one study. The study that often becomes a go-to for the many studies tends to be University of Chicago Crime Lab study indicating a dramatic reduction in crime when you light up the projects like a prison yard with all of the accompanying noises and smells that come from a hardy diesel-powered light fixture. To my knowledge, I do not believe that that study, and Mike, maybe you can confirm this or if, you, if you're aware, I don't believe that study was peer-reviewed. I may not be correct on that. Yeah, I, I think I've heard of this study, um, and I'm sure there's many studies like it. Uh, but at the end of the day... A study is going to say what somebody wants it to say. And what ultimately, what our responsibility is, is to analyze what is contributing to crime in certain areas. And it's, it's not lack of light. <laughs> you know, no, when the lights turn off, no one's jumping up and saying, time to go do crime. It's, that's not how it goes. Yeah. It's poverty and it's mental health. Those are two of the biggest factors. And contributing to crime. And I think these 
cities and towns that try to overlight in the name of safety are doing it on bad faith. And I think a big part of that is that law enforcement is driving that, uh, that narrative. And so it's really important for us to come together and really educate law enforcement to say, look, this isn't actually helping. And you guys need to stop saying that it is because these are not the factors that are contributing to crime. You know, and, and like Bill, you said, crime doesn't stop when the sun comes up. <laughs> so it's again, it's a bad faith argument. Yeah. To, to me, the crime lab study is essentially saying if you can get rid of rat or rats or mice, if you just drop a nuclear bomb on a city, it goes back to Florian's quote where you have discrimination where from either restricted access to adequate lighting or from bright lights that impose surveillance and public order. How is that, how is that benefiting anyone to have to say the solution to all of your problems is by putting people in a surveillance state that is quite oppressive. Yeah. Bonnie. Yeah. Like, like Michael said, like crime can happen anytime throughout the day, not just like, Oh, it's nighttime. It's time to do some crime. Like it can happen anytime or not at all. And, um, but they're not like, I guess lighting at night isn't a cure for all social issues. While increased street lighting can help prevent accidents and crimes, it's not the only factor in creating a safe environment. Like other factors, I'd say like community policy, like social programs, economic opportunities, educational resources can also help contribute to like reducing crime and like promoting safety. And like it's important to approach the issue of community safety with a multifaceted and like evidence-based approach rather than just relying solely on one solution. Yeah, body. A lot of these issues that we see are from 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years of of segregation, of bad mm-hmm. um, of bad city planning, of discriminatory city planning. You know, Mike, you mentioned about trying to be able to communicate with law enforcement. Uh, my, to counter that, if a law enforcement officer or a chief of police or even a mayor is out there trying to get a handle on crime, and many of the community members, so in this camp in the neighborhood, many of the members want it to have improved or to have new streetlights because the streetlights mm-hmm. they have were out. Uh, and I can understand that. You know, you have a, a neighborhood there that, you know, they – they want to be able to see, as someone in an article that I read earlier, she she was like, hey, you know what? Yeah, crimes happen at night, but at least I can see the criminals. And, you know, that makes sense. So you want to be able to, to see if someone is coming at you so that way, you know, you, you can get out of the way. Um, now, if you're that law enforcement leader, how mm-hmm. do you say – no. Would you say no? What would you say? What would you say to that individual living in that neighborhood? And saying that individual saying, I want more light. Right. If I'm law enforcement, I mean, it, it seems like some, a lot of law enforcement narratives is saying the light is doing our job for us. Um, whether it's preventing or assisting in apprehension of a criminal, Right. If I'm the person who is being attacked, you know, I, you're saying that the light is instead of the cops having to actually do something, you're saying that the light is used as a, 
A crutch. I, I believe light is used as a crutch when it comes to preventing crime. And I, I don't think that just because something is lit up is necessarily going to prevent someone who wants to do something from doing it. You know, I, I, if they're, if someone wants to steal something from someone's house, they're going to take it. Um, now, depending on how dark it is, that cre- it depends on what opportunities are created. Mind you, I get that, you know, busier and inter- busier neighborhoods are not going to have a lot of crime because more eyes are, are watching. Right. And light helps with that. I get, I get that, but the idea is not necessarily removing lights altogether and just turning every neighborhood pitch black. That's not going to help anything. And that is unsafe. The manner in which we light our neighborhoods for safety, for reducing crime is what makes a difference. And like we, we said earlier, glare, I mean, yeah, you might. Bonnie, you had a great little story on glare. That was, yeah. yeah. So yeah, the person may be lit up, but so is your face. So that doesn't help if, I mean, you can't see anything if you got light shining in your eyes. So that's, that's not helpful. So there's a, there's a situation where excessive light is not going to be safe at all. So yeah, the manner in which we do it, that's how, that's what counts. And that's something that we need to talk about our law enforcement with, because they believe that we just need to add more and more light. Well, that's not going to work because it's harmful to the people who are not committing crimes. So Bonnie, you have anything else in this one? No, I think, yeah, everything is, that should be said was said, and like, I agree. Okay. Moving over to the feature of research article of the month, we look at the impact of solid state roadway lighting on melatonin in humans. And this came from Clocks and Sleep. Now, I have to preface this article with the following. I came across the article due to a very boastful Virginia Tech press release. It was a bit over the top. Uh, I'm not sure... If, for what reason it was over the top, but the study presented some interesting facts nonetheless. And all honestly, the boastful and excited nature of this press release reminds me of some aspects of the aforementioned University of Chicago Crime Lab study, which was very, very excited about the results. Uh, in an effort to reconcile an apparent public health threat of vehicle collisions to the American Medical Association's recommendation of utilizing a color temperature less than 3,000 Kelvin, Researchers found that roadway lighting did not impact melatonin levels in drivers, pedestrians, or homeowners, thereby suggesting that health is not compromised by bright and blue roadway lighting. The article did not take into consideration any ecological impacts, solely focusing on human effects. Uh, This appears to be an important step in testing roadway lighting's health impacts on people, it should be noted that the study utilized a very small sample size of 29 individuals. It determined impacts of melatonin levels to use salivatory testing. Uh, the article suggests future research could use plasma studies, which may offer a much more sensitive result. This appears to be the first test of its kind to seek scientific understanding of how street lighting directly impacts human melatonin levels. Previous studies associated even dim levels of light with impacting nighttime melatonin levels. Uh, Bonnie, I see you over there jumping. What, what's your take on this? So, yeah, I think this is, this is article of bias, yeah? <laughs> I think <laughs> based on the information provided, this research seems to be like a significant step towards forwarding and like understanding the potential health impacts of roadway lighting on humans, which is great. 
Um, while the sample size is small and further study may be needed to confirm the results, it is encouraging that the study did not find any significant impacts on melatonin levels due to roadway lighting. It's also important to note that more research is needed to fully understand the impacts of roadway lighting because the studies, it seems, it only focus on the human side of it and like did not consider the ecological impacts of light and blue lighting on like the wildlife and the environment. And I think that humans should always consider the biodiversity as well as making these types of decisions, like while they're making these types of decisions. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a piece of study that was not analyzed. I think this is the first in what I would expect to be a series of studies trying to explore this topic. Um, nonetheless, it it is a an interesting finding that it seems to be Michael. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know there's health effects on the light from different light temperatures, and this appears to be inconsistent with it. Which you know, I personally. I'm looking forward to seeing what future studies come if they confirm this study, if they, mm-hmm. um, you know, if this is true. This this will be very interesting if this is true. This will be. Yeah. Um, it, it, not only is the sample size small, I mean, it says even the amount of time. There's just, there's a lot of questions, but that's research. It's supposed to build. So. But do you, you know. do you think that time, I think that time kind of makes sense, right? If you're out driving, you're probably not driving more than two hours at night. And if you're out walking, okay, um, you're probably walking about two hours a night. Now, the homeowner, you know, maybe you extend that time out a little more, but mm-hmm. um, I don't. I don't think the time. The time kind of seemed to drive them it, to my senses, but sure. Yeah, yeah and and it, as far as what they consider exposure, you know, um, yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'd like to read more about this particular research mm-hmm. project to see what their controls and their variables were. Yeah. This, uh, this study was done on a closed test, um, a closed test road. A, yeah. A setup that they had and they utilized different fixtures, um, including putting people, I believe in like a, a trailer or something. So oh, okay. the, uh, for the, the homeowner piece, but yeah. it is a very interesting study. It's a, it does appear counterintuitive, but I'm curious to see what future research holds. And then the question will be, if really lights don't have, if streetlights don't impact people's health, where do we go from here? Bonnie, you mentioned ecology. I don't know if the ecology piece would hold up to changing light temperatures. I feel like that would be very much on a human focused and people would only look at the, the human centric view uh, yeah. versus caring about the ecology. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Well, before we close up, it's always good to leave on a high note, right? So this one comes to us from yourtango.com, written by Nari Osler. If streetlights go out when you pass them, you may have a you may have a very specific psychic power. Thank God. <laughs> wow. Now there's a superpower I can get behind. Mike, you could probably get behind. Bonnie, I'm sure you could too. Allegedly, certain people in society possess the ability to turn off streetlights simply by walking by them. They're known as sliders with the root SLI standing for street light interferers. You know you're one of them if the street light turns off as you approach on foot or by car and then promptly turns on right as you pass. Who knew? There's a whole subset of humanity that can turn off street lights, and none of them are my friends. Uh, so, yeah, Bonnie, I, I see you jumping. Um, 
I don't think there's any scientific evidence to support the idea that <laughs> certain individuals can have the ability to turn off streetlights. Or if there was, I'd totally be on top of that because like, I'm all for like paranormal phenomenons and something like you would see in Stranger Things. But yeah, this is an interesting article. I'd like to know more about like the thought process behind this. I would love to find these people. <laughs> would I, would I, it, this is an opportunity I, for the IDA. You guys find all of these. Yeah, yeah, we, we, was, yeah we, got, we need our own Professor Xavier to locate the mutants. I, I always thought it'd be kind of fun, you know, at the beginning of the Harry, the first Harry Potter movie where Dumbledore uh-huh. is, uh, is on Pivot Drive and he's got that little, little instrument, that little tool that he, he flicks off and uh, you know, all the lights on the street just kind of one by one turn off. I'd go for one of those. I'll I'll spend some money on that. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> all right. Well, it looks like we're finally at that time. Man, we've been doing this for quite a bit. So I first uh, want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Light Pollution News. Michael, Bonnie, this has been fun. It's been a lot of fun having you guys it's on. Really Bonnie, it's, it's always great to have you on. Michael, you have some uh, great insight, great knowledge. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you guys uh, letting me be here. It's very, very cool. I like what you're doing. Yeah. It was nice to meet you, Michael. And thank you so much, Bill, for having me back on again. I had a blast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's always it's always a fun time. I'm glad I was able to, to get us to not thoroughly waste our afternoon with technical issues. But, hey, we made it. We made it to the end. We did it. <laughs> so for those of you at home who are still with us, I really appreciate it. Uh, as a reminder, the show comes out once a month towards the beginning of each month. So be sure to subscribe, rate, review wherever you're able to. Join us over at Reddit on r slash news or on Instagram at light.pollution.news. And of course, you can find articles, links, tips, and more over at lightpollutionnews.com. Once more, I'm Bill McGinney. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, only shine a light where it's needed. <laughs> <laughs>